We are continuing our series through the Acts of the Apostles with the title, Turning the World Upside Down. We're in Acts 11 today, verses 19 through 26. Let's, let's read this together. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, at the beginning of this series, I shared with you that the Acts of the Apostles might be better titled the Continuing Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. Why? Because uh, this is the story. This this book of Acts is the story of the ongoing work of Christ, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to redeem a people for God and so to build a church. And uh, it, it chronicles the beginnings of of the the Christian movement through its first thirty or so years, now, the life, the mission of the church in its beginnings, in its infancy. And the passage that's before us today is a somewhat short one. It's uh, it's a simple one in many respects, but it's an incredibly important one from the standpoint of understanding the this, this unfolding story that Luke is telling us, in particular, the advance of the gospel as it's delivered beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, and and. Um, and received and believed by Gentiles in far-flung places. And so I've titled this Mission Antioch. And notice with me, first of all, that what this passage is all about in terms of geographical movement is, is that it's moving northward. The mission is moving northward. Look, look back with me to verses 1 and 4 of chapter 8. For example, if you have your Bibles open, look back there. And Luke's description of events following, just following the martyrdom of Stephen. You remember that story? At the hands of Saul and and the Jewish religious leadership. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered... <clears throat> Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And now notice how similar the language is that he uses here in chapter 11, verse 19, which we just read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. The persecution that broke out against the church in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, resulted in the immortal words of Jimmy Buffett. 
and changes in latitudes and changes in attitudes for those early followers of Jesus Christ. But what Luke described in verse 4 of chapter 8 didn't represent the end of the story with regard to changes in latitudes or changes in attitudes for that matter. But here in chapter 11, it seems like Luke is saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. He, he, he's reaching back and, and making the point that simultaneous with Peter's mission in Lydda and Joppa and Caesarea, there were other Christ followers who were actively taking the gospel to new locations. And he identifies two groups of anonymous missionaries reaching two different groups of people. And the first group are, are Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were kind of uh, cent- experienced a centrifugal scattering who went north to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And I just want you to see kind of where these are on the map. So Jerusalem is down there at the bottom. This is the best map I could find for this purpose. Jerusalem's down there at the bottom. To the left, you see uh, the word Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. It's part of Libya. And um, so that's North Africa. North of Jerusalem is Phoenicia. Uh, in those days, it was Phoenicia. Today, it's roughly the, the boundaries of Lebanon, the nation of Lebanon. And then you see Damascus, Syria off to the right. And, and then out into the Mediterranean Sea, you see the island of Cyprus. And then north again, you see Syria and Antioch. That's where all the action's happening uh, in today's text. And across the water, just uh, to the northwest, you see Tarsus. And that plays in our story today, too. That's where Saul of Saul's hometown. That's where Barnabas went to look for him. And we'll see that in just a moment. Notice what Luke says about this first group, that they spoke the word, that is, they proclaimed the gospel, but they spoke only to their fellow Jews. So so here are Jewish believers continuing to, to proclaim the gospel to Jews. The second unnamed, unnumbered group was was from the island of Cyprus, out there in the ocean, and from Cyrene, they're in northern Africa. Um, Libyans, at least today, are of African and Arabic descent. In Acts 13, when we come to it, some weeks from now, (laughs) we'll be introduced to to two men listed among the prophets and teachers in, in the church at Antioch, uh, Simeon, who's called Niger, which means what it sounds like, dark in color, dark in skin, Lucius of Cyrene. Um, two African men. And these two may have been among that original group who went to Antioch from Cyrene and preached the gospel. Upon arriving in Antioch, uh, these men did preach the gospel, but they preached the gospel to Hellenists. And remember, we a lot of times this just gets translated Greeks. What I'm trying to help you understand today is the international flavor of what was going on here. So the Hellenists weren't necessarily Greek ethnically, but they were people who had conformed to a Greek culture. 
they spoke Greek. They were uh, in every respect Greek except perhaps for their ethnicity, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. A mistake that we can easily make as we're reading these New Testament passages is to conclude that the gospel was only carried forward by a few people whose names we know. And yet one of the things we see here in verses 19 to 21 is that is that the gospel was being assertively and successfully, effectively proclaimed by people whose names we do not know, whose names we are not given, whose names we will never know until we meet them in heaven. Uh, they weren't apostles like Peter or John. Uh, they Neither were they erstwhile deacons like uh, Stephen and Philip. So one commentator put it this way. He says, there was no officialism in Antioch. I like that. There were no, official, no officialism in Antioch. Here are no big names, just humble believers carrying the gospel as they go. Antioch... You know, sometimes we think of these because we were schooled in Sunday school artwork, right? And so sometimes we, we think of these places as, as just dusty little villages, uh, not Antioch. Antioch was a major city. Timothy Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City once said that to win the cities is to win the world. To win the cities is to win the world. Why, and why would that be true? Because as the city goes, so goes the countryside. As the city goes, so goes the culture. Um, cities are centers of culture. They're, they're, they're centers of ideas, of, of the arts, of education, of influence. So what do we know about the city of Antioch? Antioch was the capital city of the Roman Empire, or the Roman province, rather, of Syria. In fact, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, third only after Rome, Alexandria, and Alexandria, Egypt. This was a large city. It was founded in around 300 B.C. by a, a, a general, a military general, Seleucus Nicator. He was a general under Alexander the Great and uh, actually became one of Alexander's successors. Seleucus named the city in honor of his father Antiochus, uh, which was not all that unique because he also named 15 other cities after his father. Uh, must have had a debt to pay or something. But, but, but this Antioch, Syrian Antioch, was situated on the, the Orontes River. It was about 300 mile, miles north of Jerusalem, about six, 16 miles inland from the Mediterranean. It happened to be built at the, the intersection of major trade routes by both sea and land, so that the city just grew very, very quickly uh, in population as well as in influence. And in the middle of the first century, the population numbered about 500,000, about a half million. And it included cultures of both the East and the West, uh, both Greek and Roman traditions mingled with Jewish and Arab and Persian and Indian and, and even Chinese influences. So, so first century Antioch, and here's what I want you to understand about Antioch this morning. It was very cosmopolitan. It was very wealthy. And it was very beautiful. 
Um, it was referred to as Antioch on the Orontes, Antioch the Great, Antioch the Beautiful, uh, the Queen of the East. The city was well known for its moral depravity as well, and uh, as well as for its culture and its sophistication. And every cult known in the empire was represented in Antioch. In particular, the the temple and the what was called the pleasure park of the goddess Daphne was just five miles from the heart of the city, where hundreds of temple prostitutes were employed. So it was that kind of city. It's after Corinth, Antioch was was regarded as sin city number two in in the Roman Empire, and uh, probably rivaled. Las Vegas in every respect. He who wins the cities wins the world. And it struck me this morning as I was reviewing my notes that it's not explained, but all of a sudden all the movement is toward Antioch. God made a decision. God had a strategy. The Holy Spirit was moving people from where they were to this city of Antioch. Why? Maybe they didn't even know. We don't know, except that God had a plan and a purpose for something to happen in Antioch. It would be hard to imagine a more appropriate venue for the first international, multicultural, multi-ethnic church. In fact, uh, it's been said that Antioch became second only to Jerusalem in its importance to the worldwide spread of the gospel. And so while, while, while Jerusalem represented the mission to the Jews, Antioch became the capital of the Christian mission to Gentiles, to people like you and me. And speaking of those who communicated the message of the gospel to those Hellenists in Antioch, Luke comments, and the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so there's just a picture of blessing, that God was blessing their ministry. God was blessing their efforts. The Holy Spirit was <clears throat> empowering the message that they were there to proclaim. Does that mean that the, the hand of the Lord was not with those preaching to the Jews? I don't think so, and I don't think that's Luke's intent. I think rather Luke's intent was to use verse 21 to kind of pivot his writing away uh, from the ongoing mission to the Jews in order to focus our attention, the reader's attention, on the expanding mission to the Gentiles because that's really where <clears throat> the rest of the book of the Acts of the Apostles now goes. In verses 22 to 24 then, we see Barnabas uh, going to Antioch. Barnabas going to Antioch. The report of this came to the ears <clears throat> excuse me, of the church in Jerusalem <clears throat> and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. You know, I, I usually, in, in, when I'm studying narrative like this, I, I try to project myself into the the mindsets of the characters that are represented in the story. And and you kind of have to feel, don't you, for, for the apostles back in Jerusalem. Um, first, the Samaritans received the word of God, shocking to them. Um, they send Peter. 
Then some Gentiles in Caesarea, and they send Peter. And now they're receiving news of people entirely unknown to them, proclaiming the gospel hundreds of miles away from them in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the known world. And the outcome is a an ethnically and culturally diverse congregation. And many of the leaders in, in Jerusalem may have felt that the mission of the gospel uh, was, was just expanding so rapidly that, that it felt like things were just spiraling out of their control. And and I kind of think that's a good thing. Don't you? And it was just spiraling out of their control. This is why um, this book perhaps ought to be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the, the apostles are, in, in a sense, just reacting now to uh, keep up with with what God is doing, and they're 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 back on their heels. But this time they didn't send one of the apostles to to inspect the situation, and instead they sent Barnabas uh, to Antioch. They sent him there on a fact finding mission. You remember we first met Barnabas in chapter 4 when Luke used Barnabas as exhibit A for those who were selling houses and lands and and bringing the proceeds and laying them at the apostles' feet to be distributed to those who had need, the the first benevolence fund of the church. Um, We met him again in in chapter 9 when he championed Saul who became Paul uh, before the apostles. He he defended Saul and uh, gave witness to his ministry, the effectiveness of his ministry, the soundness of his teaching. Uh, Barnabas' name, you remember, means son of encouragement, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And and that uh, his, his real name was Joseph, but he he became known by a nickname because he was just such an encouraging guy. Encouragement just oozed out of him. And so Luke describes him in verse 23 as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And that word good there is is an interesting one because it, it means intrinsically good. And we know that Jesus himself said, no one is good but God. And so we understand that the character of Christ, the character of God is being manifest in Barnabas's life. Theologian William Barclay called him the man with the biggest heart in the church. I don't think that meant an enlarged heart. I think, I think it meant a big heart, a generous heart, an encouraging heart. You know, it's impossible I think to overestimate the importance of this moment in the history of the early church because so much now depended on Barnabas, uh, on his reaction to what, to what he found in Antioch and, and what he would report back, the, the counsel that he would give to the church in Antioch. So what did Barnabas see when he arrived after what would have been a long, grueling journey uh, what, what did he see when he arrived in Antioch? Luke tells us that, that Luke saw the grace of God. He saw evidence of the grace of God at work in lives. And so he must have seen people's lives being changed, people's lives 
being transformed. He must have seen sincere hearts and, and, and genuine worship, a vibrant community of believers uh, loving each other, serving each other, serving their community, representing Christ well there in that amazing city of Antioch. And I wonder, do you think Barnabas might have seen any problems? Or was this the, the proverbial mythical perfect church? Think he saw any problems in Antioch? Think he had any areas of concern? Pretty sure he did. Pretty sure he did. But notice where Barnabas placed, placed his focus. Barnabas placed his focus on, on what he was seeing, the, the evidence of God's grace among them. And, and he allowed that to make his heart glad. So we might consider this morning, does observing the gracious work of God in the lives of others make you glad? Do you watch for the good things that God is doing in the, in, in the lives of people and in the church? There's always plenty of problems, aren't there? But but does but does seeing the grace of God, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, does it cause you to rejoice in Christ and to give thanks? Does it lift your spirit? Does it lift your heart? Or or is your primary focus more cynical and skeptical? Do you, do you kind of spend most of your time in in, in kind of the, the the critical corner? Do you tend to focus on, on what's not quite, not quite right on, on what's lacking in problems rather than in possibilities? See, Barnabas saw the grace of God because this was the kind of man he was. He looked for God's grace because he understood God's grace, because he valued God's grace, because he appreciated God's grace. He understood that it was the grace of God. That's what everything was about was God's grace being poured out on people through Jesus Christ. He looked for grace and he found it in a thousand different ways. And then he responded to what he saw, to what brought brought gladness to his heart by exhorting them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He called them to perseverance, to wholeheartedness, to purposefulness, and there's discipline required in the life of discipleship. And it, it's this to which Barnabas called them. And it struck me as I was reflecting on this just, just this morning that this is the, the kind of dynamic that happens in life groups or small group Bible studies, ministry teams, people, places where we get close enough to each other to actually see the work of God in each other's lives. And, and that's another one of the reasons why it's so important that, that you are in a, a tight circle of close friendships within a small group of believers, that, that uh, you're seeing the grace of God at work in each other's lives. You're praying for the work of God's grace in each other's lives. And, you know, not every... Not every meeting of every life group is a scintillating experience, right? 
but but over time that that deepening of relationships and of 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 understanding each other and appreciating one another and seeing the work of God in each other's lives and then being able to to challenge each other to keep on keeping on in Christ that's the kind of dynamic and and I so encourage you because apart from that it's a lonely world isn't it and and so who are the people that you're you're choosing to go deep with uh, in your Christian walk. And notice what else resulted from his ministry there. And a great many people were added to the Lord, verse 24. They were added to the church, to be sure, but, but first they were added to the Lord. They were included in Christ. In fact, uh, you can hang out in a church and still not be included in Christ. Still not be added to the Lord because, because going to the church, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than, you know, going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. Going to McDonald's will make you look like a Big Mac and, and, and smell like one, but, but it won't, it won't make you one. And you might look and smell like a Christian too, but not be one. So they were added to the Lord. They were included in Christ. Back in Acts 2.47, Luke said that it was the Lord who added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was he who did the work. Commenting on that, John Stott wrote that when we see the Lord adding to the Lord, I love that statement, when we see the Lord adding to the Lord so that he is both the subject and object, the source and the goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centeredness, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. It's all about him. It's all the work that he's doing. We get to be conduits of the Holy Spirit, but it's all him. You know, I often hear people say that we shouldn't be concerned about numbers in the church uh, or about the numerical growth of the church. But I, I tend to think that Luke would disagree. And the reason I think that is that he's all about numbers. Beginning on the day of Pentecost, uh, when those who received Peter's message regarding Jesus were baptized and and there were added that day, it says, about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 people uh, came to know Christ and were added to the church. Then in Acts 2.47, Luke tells us in general terms, just shortly after Pentecost, that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And in Acts 3 and 4, he tells us that 5,000 men who also represented women and children. So, you know, who, who knows how many more, but at least 5,000 men believed in, uh, in Jesus when they saw the healing of the lame men at the beautiful gate and heard Peter's proclamation of the gospel. And now here in Acts 11, he says in verse 21 that a great number were added to the Lord. And again in verse 24, that a great many people were added to the Lord. And then in verse 26, he tells us that Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. It can be argued to be sure that it's not just about numbers in an impersonal sense, but names, real people. But I'm pretty sure Luke would say that each of those numbers had a name. And I'm pretty sure he would say that God is still calling many to himself. If, if, if he wasn't, we'd be out of here. Somebody asked me just yesterday, when's Jesus coming back? And I said, well, I don't know. But, but here's something I do know that the Bible says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth. And then, and then the end will come. And, and that apparently hasn't happened yet. 
we're still here. There's still work to be done. There's, there are still people to be reached. And, and there are hundreds of millions of people today uh, who haven't heard the gospel um, or even heard about the gospel or that there even is a gospel. Many of them are in our own families. They're, they're in our neighborhoods. They're in our workplaces. And in most cases, it isn't that they've rejected the gospel. It's Instead, it's that they've simply never heard the gospel. They've never really understood it. They've heard about Christians. They've heard about churches. They've heard about evangelicalism. But they've never heard the gospel, and they never will unless we're loving and courageous to do what's necessary for them to hear it. In verses 25 to 26, then, we read of Barnabas and Saul teaching the disciples in Antioch. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Barnabas understood, didn't he, the, the necessity of personal discipleship, uh, of grounding every believer in their faith in Christ and and in the Word of God. He understood what it meant to to elevate the priority of discipleship. It had been somewhere between six and ten years, we're not exactly sure, but some somewhere between six and ten years since Paul was let down through the hole in the wall at Damascus and, and escaped those who were trying to kill him and, and uh, returned to his home city of Tarsus. And you don't really know what he had been doing during those years, uh, although it, uh, he, he seems to indicate in his letter to the Galatians that he had been preaching in Syria, the Roman province of Syria, which is where Antioch was, and, and in the Roman province of Cilicia, which is where Tarsus was. In fact, Tarsus was the, the capital of Cilicia. So some commentators have suggested that during the, that time, he, he also suffered some of the physical uh, injuries, physical persecution, uh, to which he later referred in and was probably during this time disinherited by his family because of his faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. See, Barnabas must have understood something of Saul's calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, Barnabas demonstrates, I think, two attributes of character that are absolutely necessary for really successful engagement in ministry, and the first is humility. Barnabas understood clearly that Saul was was more gifted than he was as an evangelist, uh, as a teacher, and and he was more than willing to be Saul's number two. Sometimes it's hard to play second fiddle, and and Barnabas was very willing to do that. He, He genuinely wanted to share this ministry with Saul. And second, despite the the success that Barnabas had in his ministry in Antioch, he. He demonstrates that he prioritized the advancement of the kingdom of God over his own influence and prestige. He, he could have just kind of luxuriated in the pres- prestige of, of having had a successful ministry there. But he was willing to say, as John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. There doesn't seem to have been an envious bone in Barnabas' body. He was an encourager, and encouragers know that there are some things that others can do better than themselves, and they encourage them to use their gifts, and they celebrate their success. As effective as he was, or or must have been, as a preacher, 
an evangelist, an encourager. He, he knew he needed help. He knew just the man to provide it. And so he traveled that extra hundred miles to Tarsus to search for Saul, uh, not with, with no assurance at all that when he arrived in Tarsus, Saul would even be there. But he found him and he, he brought him back to Antioch and together for a whole year, they just did one thing. They just taught. They just taught the disciples. Most of those disciples were young in the faith. They were uninstructed in the word of God. None of them had Bibles like you and I have today. Um, If they had them, they would have read them unlike us today. But they just taught. What did they teach? They would have taught all that was necessary for the believers to do what Barnabas had encouraged them to do, that is to stay true and remain faithfully devoted to the Lord. That teaching was was all the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist. And so, so they're helping them understand who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament teachings and, and what it means to be a follower of Messiah Jesus. And then in verse 26 is that unforgettable statement that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. First time. wonder where it came from. It came from Syrian Antioch. The word Christiani is of Latin derivation. It literally means of the party of Christ. Just in the same way as to be a Herodian was to be of the party of Herod and to be a Caesarian was to be a supporter of Caesar. Christian was most likely a term of derision. It was probably a term of mocking at the beginning as the pagan culture around them mocked them for their faith in Christ. And but, but here's what we know, that by the second century A.D., that all of the followers of Jesus had embraced that term for themselves, that label, and, and called themselves Christians. When you think about it, the use of the term indicates in part that the, that the church had begun to gain a sense of identity beyond Judaism. Um, that they were no longer seen nor, nor saw themselves as just some radical sect of Judaism. Instead, they were a movement more closely related to Jesus than to their Jewish origins. They identified more as Jesus people than as Jewish people. And it, issues, it raises some questions for us today, though. You know, we use the term Christian as a noun, don't we? Um, but it's also used as an adjective. I... I had a professor in college who was a significant mentor of mine and, uh, one of our, one of our, uh, you know, you always give your professors, your teachers nicknames, right? And, and ours, one of, one of ours for him was Eagle Eye because he had these eyes that could just drill a hole right through you. And I've often wished I had those eyes. But, but he would, but he would look at us and he would just scan the classroom and just, drill holes in each of us as he did and and he he'd ask this are you christian are you christian and he would clarify i'm not asking if asking if you are a christian i'm asking if you are christian and of course by that he he meant a lot of things all centered around whether our hearts and minds are our most deeply held values our lifestyles our ministries actually reflected christ actually reflected our love 
for Christ, our obedience to Christ, his presence in us. And so let me ask you the same question this morning without those eagle eyes. Are you Christian? Are you Christian? Are you Christ-like? You may be a Christian, but does your life in fact reflect his rule and his presence and his power, his peace, his priorities? Something to think about today and every day. Well, that's the passage. Here are, here are seven applications, and I'll just give those, these, give these to you quickly. Seven applications. Seven is the perfect number, right? Seven applications. First of all, God uses everyday people to accomplish his mission. Isn't that good news? A month or so ago, I mentioned that, uh, a dynamic we're beginning to see in the middle chapters here of the, the book of Acts is, is, is that the mission is being taken over by second generation leaders. But what's so exciting about this passage is that the mission is now being carried to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Who who knew that the gospel would go to those places by no-name evangelists? The apostles in Jerusalem are, are receiving messages about people of whom they've never heard doing significant things for the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel. And one of the lessons we can take from that is that God intends to use everyday people like you and me. We we may never write books. We might never gain notoriety. We might never have our own talk show. But he'll use us to write the message of, of the grace of God on human hearts. He can use you. If he can use someone like Saul, if he can use someone like me, he can use you. Not only that, but God will also place you where he wants you. One of the verses that's really stood out to me in our present study of Acts is, is chapter 1, verse 8, where, where Jesus tells the disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses in to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and I'm sure that for the, for the apostles, it was uh, one of those, oh, the places you will go moments. Um, Jerusalem and Judea probably created no cognitive dissonance whatsoever for them. But never would they have imagined that, that they would be witnesses in Samaria of all places or even beyond. <clears throat> Most of them had never even traveled beyond But they were witnesses in those places. And those who believed in Jesus through them were witnesses in those places. Why? Because the Spirit of God moved to them. And, and in some cases, he moved them voluntarily. And other times, he moved them involuntarily, like, for example, by a persecution that scattered them to places they never thought they'd go. All because he wanted them to be where he was sending them. And he kept on doing it. This morning we've seen people moving from Jerusalem to Phoenicia to Cyprus to, to, to Syria. We've seen people moving from northern Africa and Cyprus and traveling to Syria. Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem to Syria and Antioch. Saul is found and, and retrieved from Tarsus to minister in Antioch. God has a way of moving those he intends to use to the places he wants them to be according to his plan and his purpose. 
and he'll use whatever means he deems necessary to facilitate the move. And sometimes we'll feel, we'll feel rudely bumped. How did I get here? Why am I here? Not only will he place you where he wants you to be, but God will move you to the people he wants you to reach. You ever thought about that, that that there are people that God has already foreordained and foredesigned in advance that that you would reach them with the gospel? God will move you to the people he wants you to reach. He he doesn't just move people around capriciously on a whim. He's, He's not that kind of God. When he moves you somewhere, you can be sure that there's a divine appointment at the other end. And he'll move you to, to the places he wants you to be in order to connect you with the people he wants you to see. And if you're available to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, if you're willing to be used by him, he's, he'll arrange the appointment. And I would say he's already arranged the appointment. And that move might mean a change of job or a change of neighborhood, of city, of state, of country. And wherever he moves you, and it might feel like, oh, it was just the U.S. Army that moved me. No. Yes, but no. God's in charge of all of that. If you're a believer in Christ, he's he's working in your life. He's moving you to the places and the people he wants you to to connect with. Wherever he moves you, get ready because there will be people there with whom God intends for you to share the gospel of his love, his mercy, and his grace. There, There are going to be divine appointments. Next application, God by his spirit will shape your heart to value what he values. You might not resonate with Barnabas being glad when he saw the grace of God at work in the lives of the believers in Antioch. Barnabas was glad when he saw the grace of God because of who he was, who Christ was remaking him to be and to become inwardly. And and the one who began a good work in you, Paul said, is faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit will never stop conforming you to the image of Christ and shaping your mind, your your affections, your values, your perceptions, your character, your manner of relating with others. And, and he will cause you to value people and things you never have before. As part of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, next God calls each of us to gossip the gospel. I love that expression. I, I heard and shared that expression with you some weeks ago. I love it. Not everyone thinks of themselves as a preacher or an evangelist. I don't think of myself as a preacher, actually. I think of myself as a teacher, a pastor teacher. I don't think of myself as an evangelist. You might not think of yourself as either of those, but, but, but we're each called to share the gospel in our personal faith in Jesus Christ with others. That's, that's a command that's given to all of us to very simply gossip the gospel in daily conversations. Remember what, remember last week, and last two weeks actually, we talked about Peter going to Caesarea to the house of Cornelius, and it, and it says before, <laughs> before Peter could even finish what he was saying, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And, and, you know, we who preach, we, we prepare these sermons and we think, oh, I want people to hear the whole thing. And they didn't in Cornelius' house. And Peter wasn't even done saying what he was going to say, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And, and 
you know? Because and the reason was is is that it's not what Peter had to say, it was what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. I mean the message was definitely important. In fact, the text says that. It says, send for Peter. He's got a message for you that's, and for your whole household that's going to change your life. The message was important. But, it, but the power of God is more important. And, 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 the, and, and God works through the message. So, you know, most of us are afraid that we're going to screw things up, right? And we're going to, we're going to say something wrong. And what I want to encourage you with this this morning is is that if you're willing and you 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 say, "Lord, use me," and God gives you an opportunity, He's going to use whatever falls out of your mouth. You know, He's going to use that, and He's going to work beyond you in ways that you don't understand. So if you can't gossip the gospel, then at least mumble the message, right? Each of us has things to learn about how to share our faith with others. And, and, and this class that's being offered by Scott and Stan this, this summer and the next several weeks it, it will help you to, uh, to build bridges of relationship with people to whom God leads you and, and know how to share the good news with love and with clarity. And I, I really, really encourage you, many of you, to sign up for that class and, and be a part of that. Now, what better thing could happen? Um, you know, during the summer, then that you learn how to share your faith with others. And, uh, it'd be a good thing if the sun came out, but, but it'd be good if, if, if that happened as well. Next, God calls each of us to make disciples. Each of us. Each of us. Biblical command to do that, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit still applies. Jesus has never rescinded that command. But notice with me that discipleship is not an end in itself. It's a perpetual command because the mission is perpetual until Jesus comes. Disciples are to make disciples who make disciples who will make other disciples. And on and on and on it goes until Jesus comes. When Saul and Barnabas taught the believers in Antioch, they were doing their part in making disciples. But unlike the way we think today, I would submit to you that teaching is only one part. Uh, though it's a very important part of the lifetime process of Christian discipleship. In, fa- in fact, I think that, that the process of discipleship has to do with being a part of the body of Christ, being inter- integrally related within the body of Christ, so that you're in that matrix where all the gifts are operative around you. If everybody's, if everybody is operating in, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, everyone is, is exercising their gifts, that all just rubs off on everybody. And it rubs off on you. And so I think that the, the, a larger definition of discipleship is, is that you're living in close relationship with other believers within the ongoing life of the church. So each of us, whether we're pastors or teachers or evangelists or helpers or encouragers or whatever our gift set may be, each of us has a, a role in the process of making disciples. Finally, God calls us into dynamic partnerships to accomplish the work. God sent a multi-ethnic, multilingual team 
multiracial team to Antioch before he sent Barnabas. They were, they were at work long before Barnabas showed up. And the Holy Spirit was, was at work through them long before Barnabas showed up. Barnabas' role was to observe and report, but he ended up doing so much more. He went and brought Saul back from Tarsus. He added Saul to uh, the strategic partnership that he engaged with the rest of those who would who were working there. And again, it would be easy to see what Saul and Barnabas were doing and allow ourselves to think that, that that was the extent of the mission in Antioch, just Saul and Barnabas doing their thing. But in fact, we can be confident that so much more had already been done and was being done and would be done by others who, in terms of what Luke tells us, were were operating behind the scenes. That They probably weren't considered on the ground in Antioch is behind the scenes, but they're behind the scenes to us because we don't get to read about what they were doing. And may I say that your partnership is greatly needed here at Life Point Church. If God has sent you here and this is your church, then I want to ask you to make a great commitment. I want to ask you to become a Life Point partner. I want to ask you to to give and to serve and to go deeper in fellowship, whether that's through a life group or a ministry team or a special interest group. Your strategic partnership here is greatly needed. And if you'd like to better understand how God has wired and equipped you to serve, then please come to our, our upcoming Next Steps class. Or prior to that, just talk with Kathy Pruitt, because she can help you figure out how you're gifted, how you're wired for, for ministry, where you ought to be serving, and find that place of service that's just right for you. See, until Jesus comes, there's more work for us to do. And God will raise you up. He will equip you. He will use you if you're, if you'll be responsive to, to move with His Spirit. And say, Lord, what would you have me do? And then go, when He answers the question, go do that thing. And I, and I believe God wants to raise up others and will raise up others that we don't even know yet to join Him and to join us in what He intends, uh, to do through Life Point Church. Lots of other good churches. We're one of them. We want to be one of them. And, and, and we wouldn't say, obviously, we're the best church in town. What we would say is we want to be the best, one of the best churches for this town. That, that we would reach Olympia, a, such a dark, dark place with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for your word. Lord, would you take these things and apply them uh, to our minds and hearts? And Lord, help us to be intelligently and faithfully obedient to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.